As we approach the winter solstice, it's a pleasure to speak with you about the historical association between early Christianity and astrology as seen through symbols on ancient coins and other artifacts. With this presentation, I hope to help you begin seeing and interpreting the astrological symbolic language of early Christianity. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke connect Christianity to astrology in nativity stories. The Gospel of Matthew speaks about the star of Bethlehem and Magi, astrologers. The Gospel of Luke speaks of a heavenly host, which means a gathering of planets in the sky. Few people realize that Christianity and modern astrology grew up together. In fact, the birth of Jesus coincides approximately with the birth of the astrological seven-day week. Nowadays, everyone uses the astrological week, but few people understand it. The astrological week identifies planetary rulers of days by the planet that rules a day's first hour. Planetary rulers cycle through hours, so using an astrological week gave people the ability to identify the planetary ruler of every hour of every day. We owe the continued almost universal use of the astrological week, Saturn day, Sunday, moon day, and so on, to its ancient popularity. Roman days and weeks change slowly in complicated ways, generally from an eight-day market week to a seven-day astrological week. Some kinds of days, weeks, months, and years resisted change. For example, Jews continue to use a seven-day non-astrological week and define days, months, and years differently. Since the first hour of a Jewish day starts after sunset, ancient Jewish astrologers identified Christian Sundays as combinations of Jewish Wednesdays and Thursdays. For centuries, some people learned about Jesus before they ever learned about Christian Sunday. This presentation evolved from material in these two books, uh, Michael Molnar's The Star of Bethlehem, Legacy of the Magi, and my own book, The Secret Roots of Christianity, Decoding Religious History with Symbols on Ancient Coins. Michael Molnar discovered that a Christian astrologer named Julius Firmicus Maternus, early in the fourth century CE, had described the rare astrological sign that indicated the occurrence of a divine incarnation. For at least 500 years on either side of the birth of Jesus, the sign described by Julius Firmicus Maternus happened only once, only in 6 BCE. However, one important aspect of, sign, of the sign, the passage of Jupiter uh, uh, through the constellation Aries, also reoccurred 12 years later in 6 CE in a big way. That was when Rome took complete military control over Judea. The new Roman governor, Quirinius, understood events at that time in terms of the arrival of Jupiter in Aries, the star and the ram on this coin intended to represent the successful assertion of Roman power. Why does the Gospel of Matthew differ by 12 years from the Gospel of Luke regarding the date of birth of Jesus? Matthew says Mary gave birth to Jesus in 6 BCE, when Herod the Great was alive and able to murder babies in Bethlehem. Luke says that Mary gave birth in 6 CE, when Governor Quirinius conducted the first census of Judea. The Gospel of Luke made this coin a material witness to the birth of Jesus. Carvings on the sarcophagus uh, display two good shepherds and two scenes of Jonah being ejected from a boat, swallowed by Ketos, then Ketos swimming around Africa, up the Arabian Gulf, up the Tigris River, to be deposited at Mosul. 
Jonah had, uh, Jonah was trying to avoid his duty. God told him to, pre to go to Nineveh and preach to the people. He didn't want to do that. So he tried to run away. Um, so the great fish expelled, you know, he swallowed Jonah, uh, swam to, to Mosul and was expelled. Uh, in front of a, a gourd, a garden of gourds. The symbolic elements of Jonah's story came to represent the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they carry astrological meaning as well. Jesus used the term sign of Jonah in both Matthew and Luke. In both Gospels, nobody ever asked what this term meant. Apparently, everyone already knew an astrological event called the sign of Jonah. So what happened over 2,000 years ago to make the testimony of stars so important? The Hellenistic invention of modern astrology bridged the gap between ancient prophecy and new scientific discoveries. Astrology offered a new symbolic language capable of representing the evolution of the universe. Details of an astrological symbol can represent a moment, a season, or an age and secrets can be hidden in plain sight. For Christians and Jews, Genesis tells us that God communicates important information using the lights in the sky. In Numbers 24, Balaam foresaw that there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In 37 BCE, Herod the Great claimed a symbolic connection with Balaam's prophecy by putting a star and uh, scepter on this coin. He had recently conquered the, Jew the Jewish king Antigonus II, Mattathias, installed by Parthia. Rome had supported Herod by declaring him king and giving him resources for a war of Rome's puppet against Parthia's puppet. Coming from an Idumean family that converted to Judaism and having won the war, Herod wanted Judea to accept him as the powerful anointed king, the Mashiach foretold by Balaam. Herod also put starograms on his coins. A starogram combines a chi and a row in the form of a, a cross representing the word Christos, which means anointed or Mashiach. Christians later adopted the starogram as, as one of their earliest symbols. In neighboring Parthia, Zoroastrian prophecy from the fall of the Persian Empire said the end of the world would come after the defeat of the last empire that emerged from the death of Alexander the Great. Octavian and Agrippa defeated Antony and Cleopatra of Egypt in 30 BCE, ending the Ptolemaic Empire, the last of Alexander's successors. Jewish prophecy in the book of Daniel also foretold that the Mashiach could arrive around the time of Herod. Throughout the East, Jews and Zoroastrians collectively began anticipating the approach of something big. Modern astrology had only recently emerged from Ptolemaic Egypt as a magnificent whole cloth invention, a proto-science that connected any specific time and place to a universal dance of 48 constellations, seven planetary lights, 12 zodiacal constellations, 12 astrological houses, and four elements. Astrology offered a mechanistic system that allowed talented people to model spiritual influences affecting anything from a season to a specific hour of a specific day. The key astronomical discovery that changed the ancient world happened in 135 BCE. The nova of Hipparchus burst forth, burst forth in, the, in, the night, in the night sky. Woof. Burst forth in the night sky. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Proving for the first time that the firmament changed. Shortly after that, Hipparchus announced the, that equinoxes precessed. That is, that the vernal equinox moved from constellation to constellation over thousands of the years, thousands of years 
beginning around Taurus here, moving to Aries, uh, to where it, it is currently on this, on this device. This is the uh, celestial equator. This is the ecliptic. The intersection marks the vernal equinox. So people could see that the vernal equinox had passed from Taurus to Aries and was preparing to move, uh, to leave Aries and beginning the age of Pisces. Innovative cults like the Hellenistic cult of Mithras incorporated astrological evolution in their mystery teachings. The core icon of Mithraism uh, displays uh, Mithras, portrays Mithras slaughtering a divine bull whose death produces wheat, a necessity for, for sustaining life. Worshippers of Mithras saw their god in the sky as Perseus. There's Perseus. Having bound the sun to the ecliptic at the beginning of the age of Taurus, Perseus Mithras holds a sword above the shoulder of Taurus, ready to plunge it into the fuzzy open star cluster, the Pleiades. The time when the vernal equinox passed from Taurus to Aries, a great flood happened. The mythological flood of Deucalion, also called the biblical flood of Noah. On the, on the uh, Farnese Atlas, you can see the vernal equinox carved as having almost departed Aries, preparing to enter Pisces. This is Pisces right here. Next to Perseus, Andromeda reaches above Aries and, and reaches into Pisces, which the Greeks saw as two fish hanging from cords that met at a right angle. Pegasus flies upside down formed from a bright square of stars inside Pisces. Notice the monster Ketos, a dragon-shaped creature attacking the belly of Ares. So 2,000 years ago, the best science and philosophy of the day confirmed the importance of divine messages in first century skies. These coins bear stars representing the Nova of Hipparchus. They come from a period enshrined in Jewish memory as a miraculous golden age, the Maccabees having achieved independence through righteous war against the Seleucids. Both Jews and Seleucids believed the Nova of Hipparchus held special meaning just for them. This coin of John Hyrcanus I, a Hasmonean Jew, marks the beginning of full independence of, G of Judea from Antiochus VII of the Seleucid Empire in 135 BCE. The five-pointed star directly connects Balaam's prophecy, the Nova of Hipparchus, and Jewish independence. Independent Judea expanded its territory and wholeheartedly adopted the star and the Seleucid anchor as numismatic symbols of Jewish royalty. This Seleucid coin suggests a specific location in the sky where the Nova occurred. In 135 BCE, um, the future Antiochus VIII saw the Nova of Hipparchus while he was studying in Athens. Privileged with designing a coin to commemorate the event, he placed an anchor and a star on a new style Athenian tetradram. The extraordinary attention to detail on coins in, in ancient times suggests two intentions for this symbol. It records an image people recognized as the placement of the star in the sky, and it reminded people that the imperial Seleucid family descended from Apollo. Seleucid mythology said that Apollo conceived Seleucus I, then gave the mother an anchor, either on a ring or as a mark on her flesh, as a sign of the divine conception. The sky map portrays a region around the constellation Argos, the ship constellation related to the myth of Jason and the Argonauts. Though it was the largest of all 48 ancient Greek constellation, constellations, Argos comprises three separate constellations in modern times, Vela, Pupus, and Carina. So this is the ship. Uh, this is the uh, this this is the poop deck. This is a uh, this is part of the ship. This is the 
the sail, um, the anchor and star on the Athenian tetradram resemble the constellation Crooks, which looks like an anchor behind the ship constellation Argos. Coincidentally, the central plane of the Milky Way galaxy, recognizable by the line of supernova remnants, passes through the same relative position of the Southern Cross as the star next to the anchor on the Athenian tetradram. I've got information here on, uh, about, on one of these supernova remnants. I think it's this one. Uh, this nova remnant occupies exactly the right place in Crookes, and my software estimates that it occurred around 135 BCE. Antiochus VIII finally came to power after dealing horribly with complicated succession issues. He solved the issues by poisoning his mother. Antiochus then minted coins with Zeus presenting the Nova of Hipparchus as evidence in Anti uh, of Antiochus VIII's divinity. And this inscription actually says that he's being revealed the epiphany of Antiochus VIII. These are Christian, pagan, astrological, and scientific ma sky maps all contain layers of meaning and some refer to mysteries. If you position an astrology wheel uh, with the summer solstice on top and the winter solstice on the bottom, the constellations on the left in this, in this wheel uh, from Capricorn up to Gemini represent the path of the sun as it ascends from the winter solstice to the summer solstice. The constellations on the right, from Cancer to Sagittarius, represent the path of the sun as it descends from the summer solstice to the winter solstice. Writing in the first century CE, Pliny the Elder said that the sky had two gates, one in the constellation Capricorn that periodically flooded the universe, and one in the constellation Cancer, it was Capricorn and Cancer. The one, in the, uh, the one in Cancer opened a path to spirit and fire. The gate of Capricorn had last opened for the flood of Deucalion, marking an evolutionary restart for humanity in the universe. Imagining that a new evolutionary step might happen soon, Pliny wondered whether the next extinction would come by fire or by water. On the sixth century Gnostic amulet, uh, two lions represent Leo. Now notice the two little crab claws coming out of the corners of the all-seeing eye. The eye represents divine spirit looking into this universe through the cancer gate. So we have cancer and Leo, the first two constellations of astrological descent. Below the lions, a bird, a bird symbol of Isis represents Virgo. The bird attacks the front claws of a scorpion. This brings up a peculiar relationship uh, between the constellations Scorpio and Libra in the sky. The scales of Libra look like extensions of the scorpion's claws to, any, to someone familiar with the sky. So we've got Virgo, Libra, and Scorpio, three more constellations of astrological ascent. On the other side, we see St. George killing the dragon. Here, St. George represents Sagittarius, the last constellation of astrological ascent and the lowest point of spiritual fall. St. George proves that heroic effort can break the power that binds spirit to endless incarnation, death, and reincarnation. To the right of the Gnostic amulet, a crescent moon-shaped, uh, uh, let's see, Mithraic artifact from the third century CE represents a view of the southern sky at midnight on the winter solstice, the view on the, on the sky map below. 
at the moment, at that moment, constellations of the northern sky, zodiac, and celestial equator recreate the iconic bull sacrifice of Mithras, represented in the sky by the constellation Perseus. Let's see, where's ah, Perseus is going to be over here. Oh, Perseus is right here. Uh, Mithras hangs above Taurus with his sword. On the artifact, two lions uh, representing Leo attend Mithras at the peak of the zodiac. Mithras stands in front of a crescent moon that represents cancer. The lower curve represents the celestial equator. The top curve represents the ecliptic. The two curved lines intersect at the equinoxes, the spring and fall locations of the sun. So we have the same thing here in this modern sky map. We have the ecliptic and the celestial equator and the equinoxes. The vernal equinox, autumnal equinox. The gospels of Matthew and Luke firmly establish the historical connection between astrology and Christianity. Early Christians agreed with Plato that the descent of spirit had resulted from a terrible cosmic accident. The constellations in the star map preserve a metaphorical path that corresponds with the story of spiritual descent in Plato's Republic. Spirit first entered the universe through the gate in Cancer, in the summer solstice sky. Spirit passed into Gemini and acquired a soul, a mortal twin that mirrored spirit's immortal qualities. The soul served as a mechanism that bound spirit to living, dying, and reincarnating in the universe. Above Gemini, Auriga, the charioteer, marks where the naive, half-immortal son of Apollo convinced his father to let him take the reins, driving the chariot of the sun across the sky. Incapable of controlling thoughts and emotions which guided the horses of the chariot, he lost control of his vehicle and fell. Falling through Taurus, he acquired a body. Orion marks the spot where uh, the, the new composite being first landed, and the violence of the fall tore the fabric of the universe, creating the winding path of the Eridanus River and wetlands. If you know the constellation Orion in the sky, look up sometime and notice how Orion resembles the Gnostic symbol of Abraxas, the ruler of the astrological universe. Oops. Here's a Gnostic gem with an image of Abraxas. The label on the stone, however, says Yahweh, Lord of hosts. Yahweh commands an army of stars. The Gnostic archive discovered in 1945 at Nag Hammadi in Egypt included a copy of Plato's Republic. The discovery of these lost Gnostic works opened a window into fascinating Christian astrological ideas that died during Christianity's formative years. In this winter solstice sky, the constellation Ketos lies just beneath Aries. Ketos is the original root for the word cetacea, the name biologists gave to the infraorder of whales. However, Ketos is not a whale. Ketos was a dragon-like monster with a head modeled after ichthyosaur skulls that eroded from the cliffs of ancient Caria. Notice the ship Argos. From the mythological adventures of Jason and the Argonauts. In February morning skies, Argos would come even with the horizon, marking the beginning of sailing season around the, around the Mediterranean Sea. Port cities then celebrated Caris Navalis, a festival associated with Isis, where people dressed in outlandish costumes, played tambourines, and danced through city streets. An ancient system of zodiacal decans 
connects Argos with the zodiacal gate constellation Cancer. Many Christians thought of Argos as the vehicle that would carry their spirit over celestial waters through the Cancer gate and back to God. The early ship symbol used by Christians represented this vehicle of astrological salvation. Let's now consider examples from two types of Judean synagogue zodiac mosaics. A sixth century CE zodiac mosaic from Beit Alpha, 30 miles south of Nazareth, and the floor plan of a fifth century zodiac mosaic from Sepphoris, the large city right next to Nazareth. The first type of zodiac mosaic presents three main scenes, a bottom scene of the sacrifice of Isaac, um, a middle scene of a zodiac and solar chariot, and an upper scene of an ark and, or temple and cultic artifacts, cultic objects. Um, the other mosaic on the right contains a multitude of scenes from the Tanakh or Jewish Bible. Don't bother looking too closely. The scenes use fine details to represent specific sacrifices and events. Scholars often remark on the lack of any pattern in the selection of scenes, finding no reason why one scene might be chosen over another. Only two zodiac mosaics of this type have been found so far, this one at Sepphoris and another at Hukok. The scenes chosen for the Sepphoris mosaic differ greatly from those of Hukok, but scenes on both mosaics share one important characteristic. In both cases, the scenes selectively reference the constellations of astrological ascent. Oops. Well, to, uh, to understand how this happens, you have to know that weekly Jewish services have portions of the Bible assigned to them according to Jewish lunar cycle months. During services, readers cover approximately one-third of that week's prescribed Bible portion. That way, the whole congregation reads the entire Bible every three years. Thus, as every image in a Bible portion refers to the Hebrew month in which it is read, every Tanakh scene points to a specific zodiacal constellation. Consider the zodiacal constellations referenced in the Tanakh scenes of the Sepphoris zodiac mosaic. The lower scenes all refer to Capricorn, the earth constellation that begins the path of astrological ascent. The middle scene above the zodiac um, refers to Aquarius, the second constellation on the path of ascent. A jog left takes us to a scene connected to Pisces, the third constellation of, of, uh, of ascent. Then the long scene uh, above that refers to Aries, the fourth constellation of ascent. No scene connects the Tanakh to Taurus, but it's hard not to see Taurus uh, in the top scene where two lions stand on top of two bulls. A lion on top of a bull symbolized springtime in ancient Persia, specifically referring to sunset at the vernal equinox when the sun in Taurus died passing below the horizon and Leo brightened high in the darkening sky. The third scene in the panel above the zodiac refers to Gemini, the sixth constellation in the path of ascent. I don't know what connects with the, with the ark, the temple and sacred objects. Ah. Nevertheless, I numbered this scene with a blue seven to indicate my guess that Cancer, the final constellation of astrological ascent, provides the gateway to God and the realm of divine forms. And to me, the row looks a little bit like a crab, or like a facing crab. Given 12 possible constellations, one would expect a mosaic designer randomly selecting Tanakh scenes to select six constellations of astrological ascent 
only once in a thousand times. A second mosaic de de designer randomly might make the same selection once in a million times. The person who, defined, who designed the Sepphoris zodiac mosaic intended to represent a path of astrological ascent. Regarding the much simpler design of the Beit Alpha mosaic, uh, with its prominent sacrifice of Isaac in the lower scene, one can imagine Abraham and uh, uh, Isaac and the Beit Alpha congregation looking up at constellations in the sky at a specific moment of the year. So here they are looking up into the sky. The reading related to the sacrifice of Isaac always happens during Rosh Hashanah near the autumnal equinox. This is the best time of the year to see all the constellations of astrological ascent in the night sky. At sunset, the, Capric the, the constellation Capricorn appears first in the west, brightening slowly out of twilight. Toward morning, the rising sun washes the stars of cancer from the sky. This slide models the, the sunrise astrological event of April 17th, 6 BCE, that matches characteristics identified by Julius Firmicus Maternus as indicating the birth of a divine incarnation. The sign happens when the moon on the last day of its visibility in the morning sky encounters Jupiter on the very first morning of its visibility. The moon then must pass directly over Jupiter before disappearing in the light of the sun for three days. This astrological sign of Jonah directly connects zodiacal constellations of astrological ascent with the gospels of Matthew and Luke. Astrologers in ancient times could calculate only the possibility of a sign. The moon might pass to the side of Jupiter or either planetary light might fail to be seen. To verify the sign, Magi had to look east and see it. Also, the other five heavenly bodies had to be well-positioned astrologically. In his book, Michael Molnar provides a deep discussion of the astrological virtues of the morning of April 17th, 6 BCE. If you look at the astrological chart for this event, rotated 90 degrees uh, to represent noontime, the constellations of astrological ascent stretch across the, the, the sky from winter solstice in Capricorn to uh, in the east to the planet or in the west uh, to uh, the planet to to the summer solstice in the east. All the planetary lights occupy only a menorah's width of sky around the vernal equinox. The gospels of Matthew and Luke paint astrolog astrological pictures of this event consistent with the sign described by Julius Firmicus Maternus. The Magi had to look east to see the sign, but the constellation Aries pointed Magi west toward the child's birth in Judea. Some interesting related symbols have emerged from the discovery of two adjacent Christian tombs in Talpiot, just outside Jerusalem. People call one the Jesus family tomb, the other the resurrection tomb. The relative position of the advanced moon shows how to recognize that the moon will cover Jupiter. The bottom image of a chevron and, uh, and circle, let's see, marks the entrance of the Jesus family tomb, resembling a moon covering Jupiter. An identical symbol also appears on the back of an ossuary identified by the Catholic Church as belonging to Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped Jesus carry the cross to Calgary. The image above the, the tomb, I mean, the, above the moon, comes from the resurrection tomb, the tomb of a rich landover, the very earliest symbolic reference to the sign of Jonah. This symbol represents a great fish swallowing a stick figure man. Lest there be any doubt who the artist meant, the body of the man uh, comprises Hebrew letters that spell out the name Jonah. The symbol at the very top comes from the Jesus family tomb, from the lid of an ossuary labeled Jesus, son of Joseph. 
By midday on the morning of April 17th, 6 BCE, 6 BCE, the moon had passed over Jupiter and the sun had reached its highest point in the sky. As, as represented on the astrology chart, the sun shone among a heavenly host of seven planetary lights. The constellations of astrological ascent stretched from Capricorn in the west through constellations with planets Pisces and Aries and Taurus to Cancer in the east. Positioning the springtime sky to midday, facing south and turning off the sun's light, we see the constellations of astrological ascent from Capricorn uh, to Cancer. Where's, ah, oh, there it is. The map provides a clearer view of spirit's path of descent in Plato's Republic. Spirit entered through Cancer, then passed through Gemini, Auriga, Taurus, Orion, and crashed. Tearing the long path through wetland that became the bed of the Eridanus River. Now let's look at Perseus myth constellations. King Cepheus and Queen Cassiopeia lie north of this map, out of view. However, Perseus, Andromeda, Perseus, Andromeda, and Pegasus stretch above uh, Taurus, Aries, and Pisces. While Ketos skulks below Aries and Pisces. Originating from a single mythological root, Jason, Heracles, Perseus, and Jonah all got swallowed at one time or another by the dragon-like sea monster, Ketos. The monster then expelled each one of them three days afterward. The constellation Perseus also represented Jason, who led the Argonauts on the great ship Argos. The constellations Argos, Gemini, Heracles, Ketos, and Ares connect directly to the myth of Jason and the Argonauts and the quest for the golden fleece. Perseus, Ares, and Ketos surrounded the sun. Perseus, Ares, and Ketos surrounded the sun on April 17th, 6 BCE. The Doris Cup displays a picture of Jason being regurgitated by Ketos three days after being swallowed. You can see Aries in the background, golden fleece waiting to be acquired. Greeks and Romans generally saw the constellation Pisces as two fish connected by a cord. However, Jews and early Christians also knew about Babylonian traditions concerning Pisces. For Babylonians, the, the cord that formed two branches in Pisces represented the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The vertical branch connected to a fish, but the horizontal branch connected to a bird, a dove, called in Hebrew, a Yonah. Between the river branches, Babylonians saw uh, the great square of Pegasus as representing the first garden in the universe. Jews called it the Garden of Eden. We can now see how Magi came to describe the astrological event of April 17th, 6 BCE, symbolically as the sign of Jonah. Partly following the Jason script, um, the constellation Perseus, let's see, Perseus falls into the mouth of the constellation Ketos, stays for three days and then is expelled beneath a garden at the, Jonah, uh, uh, at the Yonah of Pisces. Mimicking the hero's fate, the moon disappeared from the sky on April 17th and emerged three days later in the early evening sky as the new moon. Astrologically, every symbolic element in the story of Jonah can be found in and around the constellations Aries and Pisces on April 17th, 6 BCE. The narrow astrological distribution of planets in the constellation Taurus, Aries, and Pisces is especially intriguing. 
found in a synagogue of ancient Tarikiae called Magdala in modern times, this carved stone tablet may have supported a Torah during Jewish services attended by Jesus. Much has been made about the, the table's symbolic resemblance to the Jerusalem temple. Looking at the stone as a temple table, we recognize loaves of, of showbread, showbread offering, uh, and perhaps cultic articles uh, like rakes for raking ashes and pots for holding water, sacred water and oil. However, little attention has been paid to the table as a model of the ancient universe. Astrologically, the arch uh, uh, on the menorah side of the table represents the ecliptic curving across the southern sky. The lamps of the menorah represent the seven planetary lights. The ringed rosette carving on the top, displaced north of center, represents the circumpolar region of the northern sky, a region called by the Egyptians, the land of the Eternals. 12 other objects on the table, or, or I mean 12, 12 other objects on the tabletop represent zodiacal constellations, five in the north and seven in the bottom. This corresponds to the popular division of the zodiac into five constellations of astrological descent from Leo to Sagittarius and seven constellations of astrological ascent from Capricorn on the right to Cancer on the left. The two columnar objects uh, on the tabletop represent the two solstices, winter solstice on the right near Capricorn and summer solstice on the left near Cancer. The center of the ecliptic above the menorah lamps represents the vernal equinox region of sky. The menorah literally represents all the heavenly uh, lights occupying only the constellations, Taurus, Aries, and Pisces. In a magnificent coincidence, the Migdal stone models a universe that represents exactly the same planetary positions and sky that happened on April 17th, 6 BCE. On the side of the Migdal stone, columns support the sky like a, a temple roof, but the rear panel of the Migdal stone echoes Greek mythology of spiritual descent. The columns on the northernmost panel support a cart there's two wheels and there's the cart. The same type that carries deities on ancient Levantine coins. Beneath the cart's wheels, tongues of flame shoot out from the floor and from the columns. These could be sacrificial flames in the temple, or they could represent flames from spirit crashing the, the solar chariot into the Eridanus wetland. Let's look at the blank sky again. On the right, a water-going Capricorn marks the beginning of astrological ascent from the, win uh, from the winter solstice. Uh, off the map to the left of, can of, of Cancer, Leo marks the beginning of astrological descent. The noonday sun shines due south, just over the monster Quitos. The front panel of the Migdal stone helps remind us of the stone's orientation to astrological ascent with a heavenly host of seven planetary lights close to the vernal equinox. Now consider this restored image of an ancient sacred gold object, the base of the Jerusalem temple menorah as carved on the triumphal arch of Titus on the Via Sacra of Rome. The symbols on the base of the temple menorah represent constellations in the four cardinal directions of an astrological ascent sky. The lower panel portrays Quitos. Um, near, near the horizon, due south. Above Quitos is a crown with two eagles on, on either side, represents the constellation Corona Borealis, near the horizon, due north. Both panels on the right portray seagoing animals that represent Capricorns. 
Both panels on the left portray animals with lion faces, suggesting Leo. This offers a glimpse into the long-standing cultic importance of this region of sky. Jesus earned money as a tecton, that is a builder in stony Galilee. He must have been a skilled worker of stone. The Talmud preserves a story about a dispute Jesus had with his teacher when Jesus set up a brick and worshiped it. This suggests a memory that Jesus may have played some role in creating something like the Migdal stone. Beyond accurately reflecting the rare circumstances of April 17th, 6 BCE, the Migdal stone suggests a connection between gospel stories and cult mysteries. It metaphorically speaks of astrological ascent and descent in terms of, it's not on that one, in terms of the five loaves of heavenly bread uh, and, and, the, and the, the, five, the seven and five loaves of heavenly bread. These specific amounts of bread match details in stories about Jesus feeding the multitude. Here's another fun coincidence. All the proposed dates for the crucifixion of Jesus feature the sun shining out of a spot between the legs of Aries. This representative model of the sun's crucifixion position shows how early Christians began to represent Jesus as the good shepherd identical to images of the god Hermes Creophorus. Images of the good shepherd comprise a majority of the earliest portrayals of Jesus, the face of Apollo as the sun shining from a place between the ram's legs, astrologically represented both the birth and death of Jesus. After adopting the image of Hermes Creophorus, some varieties of early Christianity also adopted ideas in hermetic literature, ideas from works like the Hermetica and the Emerald Tablets. The cult of Hermes strongly influenced Gnostic cults. This coin from the first century CE portrays Hermes Creophoros um, and Poimandris, the founder of Tanagra in Boeotia. Poimandris, a Greek name that means shepherd of men, is also the name of one of the most important books of the Hermetica. The Hermetica teaches how a person's spirit can escape this universe and return to union with God through Gnosis. Roman Syrian coins featuring a star, the constellation Aries and a crescent moon easily acquired special meaning among the minority Christian population in Roman Syria province. These are three centuries of Roman Syrian coins that use the astrological symbolism that astrologer governor Quirinius invented. In 7 BCE, 13 years before the minting of any of these coins, Augustus Caesar assigned control of Syria province to governor Varus. During the last horrible days of King Herod, governor Varus crushed regional rebellions and executed self-proclaimed messiahs. Jewish sources blame Mary's pregnancy at the time on a young Sidonian auxiliary named Pandera, one of the first local recruits to join the legions of Varus. Nine months after conception, Jupiter entered Aries in 6 BCE to amass a heavenly host in the sky. Six years later, Tiberius took a th three-year break from the court of Augustus Caesar. While living on the island of Rhodes, Tiberius studied with the famous astrologer, Thrasyllus of Alexandria. Publius Sulpicius Quirinius visited Tiberius in Rhodes and studied astrology with him. In this way, Quirinius and Tiberius learned to speak the same astrological language. A few years later in 6 CE, Augustus sent Quirinius, the new governor of Syria province, to take control of Judea. Quirinius exiled Herod Archelaus, the last Jewish, I mean, the, the Jewish tetrarch, uh, and began immediately taking the census. Quirinius understood his new governorship astrologically in terms of Jupiter re-entering Aries, echoing the contentious governorship of Varus 12 years earlier. Quirinius was not disappointed. Jewish law severely restricted the taking of any census identifying it as causing grave public danger. 
Governor Quirinius issued the first row of these coins in his, uh, as his legions forcefully overcame public resistance to being counted. He established the Roman pattern of minting astrological, astrological coins like these in Syria during times when Judea challenged Roman control. Minted under Augustus, the first two, the first two rows uh, of coins feature obverses with portraits of Jove and astrological reverses that portray Aries as a leaping ram looking backwards at a star, which represents the planet Jupiter. Governor Q. Cecilius Metellus Creticus Solanus minted the second row of coins, representing Judean troubles during the last years of Augustus Caesar. The third row presents three different denominations of this coin minted under Nero during the run-up to the first Jewish revolt. The Antioch mint changed the obverse from the face of Jove to the crowned head of Antioch city goddess. On the reverse, the mint added a crescent moon to the images of Aries and star. When these coins first circulated, Paul and Peter were dead and the canonical gospels didn't yet exist. Antioch minted the two coins in the fourth row during the second century CE under Hadrian, just before the second Jewish revolt. Antioch minted the bottom coin in the third century CE as the empire entered a period of serious crisis. By this time, a significant number of Christians had begun worshiping Jesus on Christian Sunday. The Gospel of Luke proves that some cradle communities of early Christianity associated the Star of Bethlehem with the astrological event referenced on the reverse of Antioch's coins. In the Gospel of Matthew, recognition of the divine birth of Jesus depended on foreign experts. Zoroastrian magi had to understand the astrological sign and identify Jesus. Wanting to eliminate foreign involvement, the author of the Gospel of Luke wrote about a heavenly host of planets directly informing shepherds about the birth. Because Quirinius minted the earliest of these coins during his census, the Gospel of Luke accidentally identified the, the birth year of Jesus 12 years after the date indicated by the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke both use correct Greek terminology for planetary motions of Jupiter. For example, uh, verifying the star in the east uh, and following as it went before and until it finally stood over Bethlehem, December 19th. These coins illustrate the continuing importance of astrology in Roman life all the way from the birth of Jesus to the childhood of Julius Firmicus Maternus. The coins directly contributed to the growth of Christianity in Roman Syria province. As with the Sepphoris zodiac mosaic, scholars notoriously criticize early Christian sarcophagus art as a meaningless jumble of New Testament and Old Testament scenes. One scholar labeled the image, images on this sarcophagus staccato biblical images, likening them to plucked musical notes but the scenes on early Christian sarcophagi often share one important characteristic. They express faith in spirit's ability to return to God through astrological ascent. We begin with understanding that images related to Jonah and the birth of Jesus represent Aries and Pisces. We see Mary and the wise men uh, on the left side and the two images of Ketos and Jonah. Here he is swallowing Jonah, and here he is vomiting him next to the gourd plants. Therefore, the largest portion of this sarcophagus represents Aries and Pisces. On the left, Moses receives the Ten Commandments with horns emerging from the head, from his head. Uh, this scene represents Taurus. It's no coincidence that Jews celebrate receiving the Ten Commandments in May. Adam and Eve represent Gemini. 
suggesting that the owner believed in the divine marriage of souls as the last step before returning through the cancer, uh, to, the cancer gate to God. Among the decans of Ares, Perseus, Cassiopeia, and Ketos, Persian hats on the Magi, uh, and a seated enthroned virgin, virgin uh, explicitly refer to Persian Perseus and the enthroned Queen Cassiopeia. Thus, the left side of the sarcophagus refers to Ares, Taurus, and Gemini. Two arati hold uh, a, a space for a small inscription naming the deceased. Immediately to the right of the arati, Noah releases a bird from the ark. The floating casket resembles descriptions of the flood of Deucalion more than the biblical descriptions of Noah's ark. Nevertheless, the flood refers to Capricorn, the source of water for all great floods. Moses striking the rock in the desert refers to Aquarius, the extended sign of Jonah featuring two ships and two Ketos monsters refers to Pisces. Thus, the right side of the sarcophagus represents Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. So we've covered a lot of material and we've reached a point where we could begin many new presentations. Centuries of ancient Christian sarcophagi wait for scholars willing to uncover the symbolic evolution of Christian cults. Look at this example. With a pitchfork, and the ancient deity on the left re represents Aquarius. Next to it, the ship that does not refer to Jonah may represent spirit's passage through cancer. On the right side, two sailors with two stars, uh, with a net with two stars represent Gemini. The three rams overspecify the three decans of Aries. And in astrology, the constellation Pisces similarly comprises three decans, Triangulum, Andromeda, and Cepheus, seemingly well represented by Jonah, the speaking woman, and the reading man. On the right, John baptizing Jesus represents uh, Capricorn, God flooding the world with spiritual water. That leaves one remaining image, a good shepherd, and one remaining constellation, Taurus. The three decans of the three decans of Taurus comprise Orion, Eridanus, and Auriga. I think the artist uses this pairing explicitly to identify the good shepherd as the divine being that came to rescue fallen divine spirit. Lots of, lots of other artifacts beg for astrological attention. The Orpheus funeral chapel mosaic. I think this is a true Ophian initiation space as referenced in Against Celsus, but it's complicated. This mosaic is worth its own presentation. The eight ivories on St. Peter's chair in the Vatican 12 ivories in the top two rows represent uh, zodiacal constellations as lab labors of Heracles. Three point to astrological ascent using images that represent Ketos, Cancer, and Capricorn. Two resemble the Gnostic deities Knum and Sophia, and one represents the substitution of a ram during the sacrifice of Isaac. Except for Canum and Sophia, the symbolism on these ivories corresponds strikingly with the symbolism in the Beit Alpha synagogue zodiac mosaic in Israel. This chapel fresco in the catacombs of Domatilla in Rome also deserves its own presentation. It includes a hidden reference to Venus as Lucifer. In the pagan world, circles of animals often carried symbolic astrological messages. This coin astrologically memorializes the death of a famous actor 
during a staged mystery performance. And of course, we now see paired images of an anchor in a ship in the context of the Nova of Hipparchus in Crux next to Argos. This is a good place to stop.